Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me. I am Rick Thomas, and we are doing Life Over Coffee. Recently, I had a lady write in to me, and she was asking for help. The situation is, is that her husband had left her for another woman. As you can imagine, these are desperate straits that really just thrusted her into the crucible of suffering. As I was interacting with her, I noticed that there is really a maturity level about her. Uh, She has spent significant time with the Lord. She also has some close friends that are helping her. Those are two essentials when you're going through something like this. It It can be one of the most confusing and challenging times in anybody's life and also the most painful. And so as I was interacting with her, I did share eight things that I thought would benefit her, and I want to share those eight things with you. I asked her, I said, would it be okay if I uh, developed a a podcast and and some show notes that I could talk about these eight things that I'm sharing with you? And she said, you can share my entire letter. That's fine with me. Now, I'm not going to do that. I am going to share a couple of snippets of things that she shared with me. But please know that I have flattened it out. I have removed her name, geographical location. There's no church involved. And so there's really no There's no point in that uh, because those specific details aren't critical. But what she is going through is critical. And the reason that I want to share this with you is because this is not an anomaly. What has happened to her or what is happening to her, it has happened to so many people. In fact, we have several people on our forums right now that are going through a very similar situation, and it is quite desperate. And so I shared eight things with her. I want to share those eight things with you. I trust that they will be an encouragement for you. This is episode 442. And so if you want to see my show notes, just go to lifeovercoffee.com. You're looking for episode 442 in our Life Over Coffee podcast series. The title of it is Eight Responses to the Spouse Whose Spouse Left. And so let me get into these things. Now, by the way, you can uh, flip all this around. And so if you are a husband and your wife uh, has left for another man, uh, everything that I'm going to share with you will apply to your situation as well. And even more than that, what I am talking about is how to have a a relationship that is broken with the potential of possibly restoring it. Now, I'm not saying that that's going to happen. Uh, that's in God's mind, and that's in the mystery of His will. But there are a, there is a way to respond to a broken relationship. And so if it's a, a wife, in this case, whose husband is left for another woman, or a husband whose wife has left for another man, or, or any other type of relationship that is fractured, then these eight things I trust will serve you. And so you apply them uh, in any way that you see fit. Okay, episode 442. Now, let me give you part of what she wrote. And again, I have flattened this out to keep it anonymous because it's really the situation that's important, not the specific actors that are a part of the situation. And so she said, My husband moved out a while ago and into the home of of another woman that he had been dating behind my back. 
He has filed for divorce because I told him I would not agree to the dissolution of our marriage. It has been a multi-decade battle for us and a long, long story. I hung on through the years, always trying to help him, or so I thought. We're at the end, and I don't think I truly trusted Christ until he left me. Now, what she's saying there is that not that she wasn't a believer, but what she's talking about is that she has been thrust into a situation to where trusting Christ in her sanctification is more real to her than it's ever been in her entire walk with Christ. She went on to say, what advice do you have for me? Please pray for us. Thank you for your ministry that always directs us back to the sufficiency of Christ in him. And I signed it, hurting wife. Again, I have flattened it out. Now that is part of the longer letter that she wrote to me. I am going to share several snippets, just one-liners, as I work through these eight things because uh, it will explain to you why I have created these eight things. They're all responses to the things that she has said. So let me get into my list of eight. By the way, it's not an exhaustive list. I would encourage you to think through my eight And then also, uh, what would you add to this list? And so let's pretend that you're helping someone in a relational meltdown like what she has. And you go through my list of eight and maybe even use those things in your own discipleship of an individual. Well, what would you add? That would be something for you to think about as we work through this. All right, so in no particular order, the eight things all begin with one word. And again, It's a response to something that came directly from her letter. And so number one, the word is hypocrisy. Now, I'm using that because she said, everybody loves him, but he's not real. Now, of course, she knows that because she knows both the public and the private person. And one of the things that I told her is that when you first met him, uh, you saw the tip of the iceberg. Now, that's not a, I don't mean that negatively, or it doesn't have to be. I don't mean it cynically, because any time that you meet any person, you have only met a part of them, because it's impossible to know all of them at the first meeting, or even the first six months, or the first six years of the relationship. In fact, I tell dating couples this in their premarital counseling that what you see is only part of what you are going to get. And so the evaluation that I want them to make is, what are you seeing? What is this person like that you are dating? You see, there is a gap between who we are and who Christ is. That is with everyone because no one is entirely sanctified. And so there is always a gap between where we are and where Christ is, the optimal man. He is full Christ-likeness, and that's what we want to be. And so the question is not, is there a gap? Or in a more striking way, not that there are levels of hypocrisy where we're hiding behind our fig leaves when we present ourselves to other people. That is a given. And so I don't struggle with that at all. When I meet someone for the first time or the 50th time, I know that I haven't met the totality of them. But that's not a suspicious statement. It's just a realistic statement. And of course, I want to get to know them. 
But the question that you really want to answer when you meet someone is not, is there a gap between who they are and who Christ is? Yeah, of course. But the real question is, which way are they leaning? Are they leaning toward Christ and trying to close that gap to mature in more and more Christ-likeness? Or are they leaning the other direction and that gap is widening? Now, if that gap is widening and you are dating that individual, I just have one word for you, and that is run. You need to run. And so one of the questions that I wanted to explore with this dear lady is, uh, yeah, uh, you now know the public person that everybody knows and loves. You also know the private person. But what did you see the early stages of your relationship when you were dating? Now, I asked that question in a, in a, with a caveat or with a footnote that I'd, I would not want her to pummel herself as she looks in the rearview mirror and thinks woulda, shoulda, coulda, and old dumb me, why didn't I, you know, do this? Well, you know, that is water under the bridge. But just, just to try to gain clarity on this relationship, I want her to know what kind of relationship this really is. And so when you were dating, what was it like? Was that gap wide and it was getting closer? Or it was that gap wide and it was continuing to widen? I think in her situation, the person that she met, she saw the tip of the iceberg, but did not have clarity, did not perceive, or did not want to perceive. I don't know. Love can be blind that way. But he was not leaning into Christ. He was kind of leaning the other direction. And so that gives her clarity on the type of individual that he is and based on where he is now, that's a pretty good indication of how he's going to continue to go. It's going to continue to widen, and I would imagine that he will continue to pursue this other lady. And so she has to have clarity now. And so you look in the rearview mirror to get the broad scope of this individual to see what it has been like over the past couple of decades, not to beat yourself up, but you have to shake yourself because if you don't have clarity now then I don't know I don't know what else can happen for you to gain clarity on the reality of this relationship and so it's a hypocritical relationship and as he, he is becoming more hypocritical which is actually a true statement for him but that would also help her any future relationships that she may have she needs to have this kind of clarity and you do too and again that's why I talk about this in premarital that what you see see is only part of what you're going to get. And so if he's leaning in or if she's leaning in toward Christ, well, that is a very good thing because that, that gap's only going to shrink and that person's going to be more and more Christ-like. If that individual is leaning out, then again, go back to my one word admonition to you, run. And so I shared with her eight things. The first one was hypocrisy based on her statement about the public and private persona. Number two, the word is attitude. And I said that because she said, quote, I struggle daily with having the right attitude. Well, that makes, that makes perfect sense. And so I shared a couple of things with her. And one of them is, is that her attitudes are going to continue uh, to shift because each day the 
oscillations of attitudes can come and go, and it really depends on what is going on in your life. In the early stages of a separation like that, there is ongoing drama that comes in and out of your life because the relationship has not settled one way or the other, but the relationship is still chaotic. And of course, there is things that have to be taken care of, either with the restoration of the marriage or the dissolution of the marriage, whichever direction that goes. And so your attitudes are going to continue to shift. But I also told her that even 40 years from now, if you do get a divorce, and even if you get married again, that there's going to be a faint echo of, of this dissolution of your marriage because committing adultery and pursuing all the way through divorce, adultery and divorce has a very long uh, shelf life. It is very traumatic uh, for the soul. Uh, just a few weeks ago, I was in a restaurant, and I met a, a gentleman that was in the Marines. I turned around, and I saw him there. And whenever I meet someone that's in the military, I typically make a beeline to them because I want to say hello, I want to shake their hand, and I want to thank them uh, for their service. And that's what I did with this gentleman. And, of course, we struck up a conversation. And so one of the things that I asked him, I said, did uh, do you talk to other people about what? Now he was in Vietnam, and I said, "Do you talk about? Do you talk to other people about your experience in Vietnam?" And he looked up at me and he said, "No, I don't. I don't talk to anybody about that unless they were there because they understand." And his eyes kind of watered, and actually mine did too, uh, because I love military people. And I told him about my uncle, who also served in Vietnam, and I had a very similar conversation with him several decades ago. And he, he was crying as he was reflecting upon what happened uh, in Vietnam. And he would not share it with me, because he just said, I just don't want to talk about it, because it was so painful, and the reverberation of what he experienced, even though it's not as acute as it was when he was there and shortly after he left, there is a faint echo of that trauma that continues to reverberate in his life even decades later. Well, I've seen that also with people who have gone through adultery and divorce, that it has a very long shelf life. However, you do get over it in the sense that you do experience God's persevering grace. And there's also an element of it that you don't want to get over. You always want to remember. You see, I have gone through this exact experience, and God has flipped the narrative of that horrible situation in my life to provide a ministry that reaches hundreds of thousands of people. And part of it, part of this ministry firmly sits on top of, of that painful experience in my life. And by remembering it, it really keeps my ear to the ground of other people and what's going on in their lives. And so there is an element of that trauma that I do not want to forget. And so initially, you're trying to distance yourself as much as you possibly can for rational reasons. You want to survive. But as you distance yourself long enough, eventually it becomes a slight echo. You never do forget. But what it does as you experience God's grace in your life, then you begin to practice gratitude because you do see, as Joseph said in 5020, 
that you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. And so as distance gathers between you and, and the situation, you begin to see that, that God is using this in a profound way. And that's one of the reasons you don't want to forget because it brings you to a place of gratitude for all that God has done in your life. But back in the crucible where this lady is dwelling right now, she is going through the vicissitudes of of attitude adjustments and recalibrations, and she's struggling with having a good attitude either toward God, toward the situation, toward her husband, and toward the, the, the lady that he is sleeping with, and that makes complete sense. But I wanted to give her that timeline of attitude and how it will continue to evolve over the months and years and how eventually this situation will be a monument, a testament uh, to God's grace. And so I shared eight things with her. One of those was hypocrisy, which we walked through. Number two was attitude. Number three is sovereignty. And this may be the biggest one of all. I call this the the why question. And, And I bring up the word sovereignty because she said this, I never thought I would be in this place. Now, I hope so. I hope so. I I hope everybody that's married is not thinking they will be in this place. Uh, But she is meaning it from a more, she means I never thought I'd be in this place from a more perplexed perspective. What is going on here? And whenever there is a traumatic event like this, uh, you do have to ask the why question. You have to deal with the why question head on because it is a thing. God was there. Just a casual reading of Job chapter 1, you recognize God was not only there, but he was working in the background. God is always there in all of our trouble, in all of the good times and all of the bad times. God is there. He is there before we ever get there. God is omniscient and omnipresent and omnipotent. God is everywhere and in all things. And so there is a sovereignty question that has to be asked and it has to be answered And the Bible must inform how we think about the sovereignty question, or that will contribute to oscillating thoughts. And so my appeal to her is that she has to fixate on God and and keep appealing to God, trying to understand what He is doing in her life and her presupposition the lens through which she looks at this sovereignty question, the presupposition has to be God's goodness. Because whatever he is doing in her life, he is doing it, he is permitting it for her good. And again, Joseph informs us here, ye meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And so she has to wrestle with the sovereignty question, and that is probably the biggest one of all. Number three. Number four, I'm using the word awareness. She said, I have come to the place of seeing my sin in the marriage. Now, this is a profound thought for anyone that's going through something like this. It's it's absolutely profound. Now, as I was interacting with her, I, I noticed that there was a level of maturity with her. And because of 
her maturity that was objective in my view. And because of her making this statement, she led with it. I, I didn't gaslight her to say this. I, I didn't try to lead her to say this. This was a statement that she made. I have come to the place of seeing my sin in the marriage. Now, this is a place that everybody has to come to because it takes two to tango. There are two people in this relationship. So here is a here are two words that you really have to wrestle through when you're helping someone in a situation like this. And I want you to listen carefully because in one big way, these words are not connected, even though they fit within the drama of what is going on between this husband and wife. The two words are cause and contribute. And so when I say cause, I am saying that the husband is 100% the cause of choosing to leave the marriage, choosing to date, as this wife was saying, another woman. Uh, that is a euphemism for adultery. He is the cause for leaving, the cause for adultery, the cause for staying away. She is 100%, the wife is 100%, not the cause. But some biblical counselors unwisely, unbiblically, and unhelpfully conflate those two words, and they will say that she is neither the cause nor a contributor, and that is just a lie. It's an absolute lie. And if someone counsels that way, they need to be confronted, rebuked, and people who receive that counseling need to be warned because that will gaslight them into a root of bitterness and they will be blind to their own contribution, knowing that their contribution is not the cause. But when you can come to the place of recognizing that you have faults in the relationship, that is a victory for you because you can work through those faults regardless of what the other person ever does. And you want to be free from any tentacles that uh, cause you to hinder a relationship. You want to be free from that. And so what I appeal to her to do is to repent of what she needs to repent of and let it go. I also warn her that just take a backward glance only a glance, not a staring into uh, the rearview mirror and just fixating on what happened in the past because that could fast-track you into bitterness. But you want to carefully and quickly glance into the past. How did I contribute to this relationship? How can I change regardless of what my husband does? And so she made a profound statement when she said, I have come to the place of seeing my sin in the marriage. By the way, that's where I came to also in mine. I did not commit adultery. I did not leave. I did not sign up for this. I did not agree that this is a path that we should take. But when things began to settle and I began to wrestle through the sovereignty question, I saw that there were things in my life that I needed to address, and I addressed those things which had no influence whatsoever on what happened eventually. And so my motive for addressing those things was not a, a subtle ploy to bring restoration to the marriage. No, it was an overt plan to be right with God regardless of what my uh, wife wanted to do. And so point number four is awareness. Number five is children. She said, 
My, uh, my child still loves him. She does not know what he has done. And so number five is children. Now, one of the things that I talk to her about is that the children will always love him. To one degree or another, there will be some kind of love. It may, it may slowly diminish over the years depending on you know, how he engages them and the life that he leads. And so if, if someone loves somebody and it's not wrong for them to love somebody, you don't want to sabotage that. And so I, I told her, I said, remember, I mean, don't say anything negative uh, about him to them. Now, some of that is proportional to the age of the children and the appropriateness of communication and the maturity of the children and, and the reason that they're asking questions about the dissolution of the marriage. But even when you talk to people about uh, someone who is living a life of sin, you want to be careful how you frame it. Uh, because you don't want them to take up an offense. You don't want them to be gossipy and slanderous and, and bitter toward that person. No, you, you want them to love that person, to respect them as a person made in the image of God. You want them to be motivated to pray for that individual. You want them to be on your restoration team, not to be angry. Sometimes the way people talk about those who have sinned against them, they create a small clique or a small army of people who rail on that individual, and, and it's not a redemptive community. And so the way that she communicates to their children about her husband and what may be her ex-husband, she wants to make sure this is a redemptive community, not a bitter one. And then when it comes to the children, I also told her that she needed to paint a portrait of Christ. And a beautiful picture of Christ is Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, those nine elements there. And the reason that I told her to paint a portrait of Christ by becoming more and more Christ-like is that you want her children to see what Christ-likeness looks like. Think about this. If she is leaning in and moving toward Christ, and he is leaning out and moving away from Christ, well, eventually, as the children grow up, they're going to see two portraits, one that looks like Christ or is maturing in that direction, and another one that looks like Antichrist and is maturing in that anti-direction. And as those portraits are painted over the years, the children will have to make a choice that which path do they want to walk down. Now, you're not trying to be Christ-like, to manipulate the children, to gaslight the children. You're being Christ-like because you want to glorify your Father who is in heaven. But, but the side effect of that is that it gives your children a clear picture of what Christ-likeness looks like, where this other picture shows them the path of the wide road that leads to hell, the wide road that is dark and dysfunctional. Now, maybe they choose that path. Maybe they love the world, this present evil world. But that, again, is their choice. But you want to give them an option. And so the best thing you can do is to paint a picture of Christ's likeness and leave the choice between them and God. And so, one, do not defame the parent. 
build a, a redemptive community that wants to pray for and restore the wayward parent, and then also paint a portrait so that they can see clearly that there's an option over here, and, and I trust that that option would be compelling. Number five, children. Number six, the word is prayers. She said, I want to rain fire and brimstone down on them. I said, go ahead. <laughs> go ahead and rain fire and brimstone down on him and them. Uh, I mean, the Old Testament gives us that option, right? And so, but as I was talking to her, I also wanted to see an evolution of her prayers I didn't want her to see, I didn't want her just to hang out on the uh, fire and brimstone section uh, in the prayer room, uh, but also wanted her prayers to mature and to evolve and to become a little more expansive. So if that's your starting point, uh, fire and brimstone, then, then let it rain. But also ask her, I said, said, pray that his path would be hard and that he would come to the end of himself. And so in addition to obliterating him, uh, how about Luke 15, 17, where the prodigal ended up in the hog lot? That's not as intense, even though it seems intense, uh, but not, not as intense as fire and brimstone. And so as you pray one way, pray another way, and just say, God, bring him to the end of himself to where he will come to his senses and gain clarity and repent of his sin. And then a third prayer uh, is ask her to pray Proverbs 21, 1. Uh, that prayer or that verse says the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord and, and God turns the king's heart however he wants to. And so that's the satellite prayer. And so as you're praying, you beam up your prayers to God and then he operates in that person's heart, wherever that person may be. And so you just petition God and say, dear God, I can't turn his heart. I don't want to even try. I don't want to uh, get into that. I don't want to try to manipulate him in any way. And so, dear Lord, would you just turn his heart? And so Proverbs 21.1 talks about that. And then a fourth prayer is to pray for other people too. Uh, not just him in this situation, but pray for other people because what you want to do is to practice getting beyond your suffering. You don't want to be suffering-centered, problem-centered, but you want to be God-centered. And part of being God-centered is to love him and love others more than yourself. And so pray fire and brimstone if you believe that's what you need to pray. Pray that he would come to the end of his uh, sense, come to his senses, he'd come to the end of himself. Pray also that God would turn the heart of the king and turn, turn this man's heart as well. And then just create a life of prayer as you pray for other people who are uh, in situations where they need God's intervention. And so number six was prayers. Number seven is care, C-A-R-E. She said, I need a lot of help. And, and again, this is another sign of her maturity that she's not isolating from the community, not isolating from uh, her local assembly, but she wants to get together with the local church and surround herself uh, with friends. And so I appeal to her that you have one or two close friends that you can share with. But, however, 
You don't want to be that person that comes to small group and then you just take the air out of the room by talking about your problem with this man and what's going on in your life. And, and then people are just going to start thinking, well, here comes Mabel and I know what tonight's small group is going to be about. And so you don't want to be dominated by this. But if you have one or two close people that you can talk to as part of your restoration team, restoring your own soul, and they can petition God to restore this man too. And so I appreciate the fact that she's not isolating because that is a temptation when you're going through trouble is to withdraw from the community. As I say, you can do a lot of things by yourself, but sanctification is not is not one of them. And I appeal to her to take care of herself physically and spiritually, meaning that you need to be exercising, you need to be eating well, you can't be binge-watching Netflix, eating pizza and drinking sodas, never leaving the house. And, and again, she's not going to do that, and so I could say that tongue-in-cheek, but I know that some people do do that or some version of that. And so just like the prayer life I was talking about earlier, she prays for others, she's moving away from a suffering-centered life and pouring herself into others through prayer, I ask her uh, to begin to see who you can take care of, to see who you can care for either physically or spiritually, so that you can come up under the two great commandments of loving God and loving others. And of course, as you do this, there is a medicinal effect. As you begin to pour into other people's lives, it is as though the Holy Spirit is working through you into other people, and there is a washing effect uh, when you care for other people. For, for number seven, then, is the word care. Finally, number eight is the word expect. She said, the good Lord will take care of me. And I say, yes and amen, that he will take care of you. Expect it. Expect to be surprised by grace. Never forget that God is working good in your life. And again, it's, it's an overused verse sometimes, but it's not the wrong verse all the time. And that is Romans 8.28 that God is working good in your life. You may not be able to see it right now. You may, may not be able to perceive it, but as you see the end of, of Job in 42.10, God turned Job's captivity when he began to pray for his friends out there. And so it is happening. And so never, ever lose hope. Expect God's goodness to come through into your life. Hope sees a goodly place afar off. And it will keep you on the right path as you make your way toward that assured victory. Hope is the thing. Uh, a synonym for hope is faith, confidence, trust, belief. And so hope is in an object, and that object is God himself. And so as we fixate on God and him working good in our lives, it creates that gravitational pull that not only keeps us on the path of righteousness, but it pulls us to that better place than we, where we are situated right now. And so number eight is the word expect, expect God's goodness. This is episode 442. I titled it, Eight Responses to the Spouse whose spouse left. I trust these things are helpful to you in whatever relational 
situation that you may be in that's difficult and challenging, or if you are helping someone going through a relational complexity at this, <coughs> excuse me, at this uh, moment. And then, as I said earlier, what would you add to this list? What would be number nine that you would want to say in 10, 11, and 12? And so use this as a runway to care for people and then just keep adding to it. Episode 442, Eight Responses to the Spouse Whose Spouse Left. Thank you so much and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.